Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, good morning. Welcome to I Communicate. Glad to be back with you here and uh, join with one of my partners in crime here, Joe Lyman. Joe, thanks for coming back on the show. As we, I know we love doing this show together. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. So, Joe, you know, um, why, why don't you enlighten our listeners about what our magical topic is today? Well, you know, as we approach the holidays, Mark, I thought, what could be better than offering a holiday gift to the listeners? You know, the folks out there who are dealing with these situations. And I, I thought, would anybody be interested in unwrapping this particular present? Would they like to be able to contribute to less stress in the workplace, to greater collaboration, to uh, an improved morale and and greater re- um, resilience in the workforce. I mean, you know, would would you be interested in that? Well, I, I not only would I be interested in it, but I think one of the things you just touched upon right out of the gate there is you talked about contributing to it, and and Joe and I are such enormous fans of emotional intelligence, and for you to be able to contribute to it. You also have to know how to do it yourself because you can't model it and support others if you're not Lee. So today is about knowing how to take care of yourself and know how to contribute to the taking care of others. Well, and that's it exactly because in the end, you literally, and we'll see why as we go through this today, you literally have to display what you wish others to mirror. So okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna share a very quick story when we start out today, and just a reminder, just to give people some context here. You know, people ask me all the time, "What does mindset go do?" And I even have a better answer now than I even usually give. It's normally we help people become more confident and effective communicators, but I realized that a lot of what we do is we help people shift their thought processes. And you know, if you think about how you act, how you live, how you communicate, how you lead, all these things, these are things that just didn't, you didn't figure them out yesterday. The way you do all those things are, in many cases, ingrained habits of how you've been living your life. So a lot of what we do when we coach and train people as a foundational um, message is, what are your thought processes? Why do you have those thought processes? And how are they helping you and hurting you? And so we're trying to kind of shift those thought processes. So on that note, I was speaking to someone in the last week, uh, a CEO of an organization, who um, is managing a lot of people in the healthcare industry, which we know is just a brutally thankless industry and job right now. And one of the comments she made to me in the discussion is she said, Mark, I don't know a lot about it, but I think I have PTSD. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the acronym, it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it reminded me of when I started therapy four years ago. And in the first month of therapy, my therapist said to me, I think you have PTSD. And my first instinct was PTSD. The only thing I know about PTSD is from fearing people in the military who fought in the Vietnam War and Korean War and the Iraqi War and whatever that have been in the throes of battle and the stress, and they are getting psychological help for their post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm like, how could I, little old me, have PTSD? 
And what she was referring to is I went through a very contentious divorce. Um, I was, uh, I had a gambling addiction. I was bankrupt. I was on food stamps. So I had gone through a lot of things over the course of my life that really stuck with me. And, and Joe, you know, I want to start with this PTSD thing leading up to our topic today, because what's interesting about PTSD to me is when you go to war, you don't necessarily have the option. You know, you're part of the military. It's your job. It's your duty. You get sent to war. You're in the, the, the fear and the risk. You don't really, can't really do a lot about it. My PTSD, almost all of it was self-inflicted. Like, I didn't have a horrible upbringing. I didn't have some adverse situation. Nobody was shooting at you. Nobody was shooting at me. But yet, I had dealt with some pretty severe trauma. And I learned from my therapist that even though it was self-inflicted, it's still PTSD. So, I want to start out, Joe, by asking you, you know, when I think of a diagnosis like PTSD, it sounds so severe so from your perspective and your experience in life, whether you have that alleged diagnosis of PTSD or you're working for a healthcare company and have long-term stress from this horrific year, you know, do I get to raise my hand and say, that may be PTSD? And even if it isn't, do I get some empathy? Do I get some support? Like, what does that even mean? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think the key is exactly... In, is to be found in your question. Where is the trauma? Do I, ha do I need to be in a firefight to qualify as trauma? And the answer, as we now very clearly know, is no. Trauma isn't something that is necessarily an externally inflicted situation, as you described with soldiers, right? You're in the middle of a firefight, people are shooting at you, you see all kinds of horrible things for real that aren't on TV or in some video game, and you experience a traumatic impact of those events. But trauma's different for everybody. I mean, consider, you know, consider a situation where we, we sent, tend to think of people as having a wonderful situation because they have external positive enforcers. Uh, we call it money for the most part in our culture. So people who have money, how can somebody with money have trauma? But Aaron Hernandez signed a contract for $40 million. I'd consider that a significant amount of money by anybody's imagination. And yet within a year was a, a suicide in a jail cell. How does somebody who has seemingly such resources to deal with the, the slings and arrows that life normally throws at us, how does somebody end up in that situation? But the reality is money didn't have anything to do with his trauma. Money didn't have anything to do with his mental situation. He had a practically uh, unlimited supply of it, $40 million, and yet still wasn't able to deal with his own, his own demons. And trauma relates to what happens to us and how we process it. And when you look at healthcare workers with long-term stress, when I mean, think about stress. Very few of us, relatively speaking, have jobs that are physically dangerous any longer. Some people, of course, do, but the vast majority of us, no, we're sitting in an office, or nowadays we're sitting at home. 
But healthcare workers are constantly confronted with stress. Um, a lot of uh, positions are these days. Continue to be in stressful situations. So go ahead. No, finish with that. And stress is, I think, people forget that stress is the one thing in the workplace that can kill you. Okay, so, so we're talking today about empathy, all right? So this is my question for you, Joe. My experience, and we're using healthcare because that's an extreme example in this case. My experience is that someone who leads an organization in healthcare, they get in front of all the people who are feeling that trauma, okay? And they'll say something like, picture, picture this environment, there's a whole, whether it's a Zoom meeting or it's an in-person meeting, all these people collected, and the CEO starts by saying, you know, wow, thank you all. I know you've all been going through so much. You know, I know you've all had so much to deal with. And that's it. Like, that's it. That's the extent of the empathy offered in that moment. And then they go to the rest of the meeting, and they go to the rest of the agenda, and to me, I call that, Joe, lazy validation. So it's like, yes, I'm going to validate, I'm going to tell you what you already know by acknowledging that you've gone through so much. So well, and, and that actually violates the rules of good feedback. It's nonspecific. It's, it's omnidirectional. We're, we're, we're patting everybody on the back, people who may or may not be you know, as deserving as the next person. And, and it's not that it's a bad thing. But if it's the only thing, then it is a bad thing okay, because so, it doesn't address the specific needs. Okay, so Joe, you're one of these frontline healthcare workers. We're gonna make we're gonna put you in that spot. You're in the room with that lazy validation taking place. And the CEO looks at you and says, Joe, don't think I'm doing a real good job being empathetic. Hear what you're saying about nonspecific and omnidirectional. But if you could script out how I conduct the rest of this meeting, where I could really show empathy, where I could really be a support system, what would be the tips and advice you would give as, as opposed to just stopping at the omnidirectional and specific feedback? Well, it's quite interesting that you used the phrases that you did, because I would ask you, what was the first thing you said to me as the CEO when you, when, you, when you wanted to ask for my advice? What was the very first words you said? You said, I don't think I'm doing a good job on this empathy thing. And in that split second, I was connecting to you. Because first of all, you were admitting a vulnerability to me. And I can get behind that because sometimes I don't feel like I'm doing a good job about being empathetic or about some aspect of my position. So merely the fact that you said, I don't know, now makes me connect with you in a different way. Because the first thing you've done is acknowledge that you may not be doing it as well as you would like to do. And now I want to hear the rest of what you have to say. Okay, so we're going to head into our first break. And Joe, when we come back, what I want to talk to you about, I want to build on what you just said. And I want to know, we're going to talk about the flip side, which is when you're not doing a good enough job empathy-wise. I want to go to talk about what it looks like the people who are doing a good job empathy-wise. So for Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be back after the break.
I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I'm your host, Mark Altman, here with Joe Lyman, and uh, we're talking about empathy. And where we left off, Joe, is I think there's two extremes taking place here. I said it before the break, the person who says the lazy validation, I know you've all been you know, dealing with a lot, and then they go on, and that's their extent of their empathy. I think there's a lot of people in that room that have expectations from senior leadership that they want to see to prove that they are genuinely empathetic. And one of those expectations, Joe, I think are actions. So there's a lot of people who are sitting there saying to themselves, you know what? If you recognize what I've been going through, and if you understand how hard I've been working and all the stress I've endured during this 2020, then you would give me another week off, or then you would hire more people for my department, or you would do blank, blank, and blank. So that's the flip side is that is, do you prove empathy with specific actions that you have to take, or is there a middle ground where you can be vulnerable, as you alluded to, but still prove you're demonstrating empathy without having to take specific actions to align with what they want you to do? Well, I, I think the answer is there's always middle ground. And the, here, I think it, it has to begin with uh, a, a theory I have about leadership. I call it ABQ, and that stands for Ask Better Questions. And here, the question a leader should be asking is, what can I do? What can I, as the leader, do to support your situation? Because that, that question involves multiple, if you will, psychological aspects. The first thing it does is it says, I don't know what you're experiencing. I'm not doing your job. When, when I do customer service training, one of the first things I tell the frontline customer service staff is, no one knows what you do. The president doesn't know what you do, the CEO doesn't know what you do, the COO doesn't know what you do, and there's a really good chance your manager doesn't actually know what you do. So the first thing to do is to acknowledge that you may not have all the answers for your people, but that you are open to the question, what can I do to help support you? And maybe for one person it's, hey, I'd really like a day off to spend time uh, with the family. Maybe for somebody else it's, you know, I just appreciate you asking the darn question. So that's a very interesting comment you're making. And I have to tell you, Joe, I primarily almost completely agree with an asterisk. And um, and I'm going to give you an analogy. Um, when I go to buy a car and the salesperson says, how much do you want to pay? I say zero. I answer the question that was asked. And of course, the salesperson looks at me and says, ha, 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 you're not going to pay zero. How much do you want to pay? Looking for a more realistic answer. So here's my point. Your question, what can I do as a leader to support your situation? Leaders are so afraid to ask that question, even when they know it's the right question to ask, because what they think, Joe, is the second you open that door and open that proverbial can of worms, that means that if the person says something that you aren't willing to do or think is irrational, like paying zero for a car, then now if you can't deliver on what they asked, you failed them or you haven't lived up to expectations. 
To which I say to those leaders when we train them, when you ask an open-ended question like Joe suggested, what can I do as the leader to support your situation? Think of what Joe said as part of that. He said, lead with, I may not have all the answers, which is also connected to, I may not be able to do everything you want me to do. But if you simply qualify the what can I do as a leader to support your situation, I can't make promises, but I want to know and I want to hear, then you don't have that barrier of I'll be letting people down if I can't give them two months off because they've been working so hard. So what are your thoughts on that, Joe? Well, and and I think you're spot on in terms of your assessment. I think a good leader recognizes that the answer to the question, can I pay zero, is no. But if you're not having the conversation, how will you know if there's something that can happen? Mm. How will you know if there's some minor little thing, something easily addressed that can be, uh, that can be taken care of? Uh, and, and, and I think you're exactly right. This goes to, um, it, well, there's a TED Talk by Brene Brown on vulnerability. Yep. And you know, within three days, it became the most watched TED Talk in history at that time. And it's still among the most watched with more than 50 million views. And she said that after this talk, of course, she got a lot of attention. And CEOs from Fortune 500 companies started calling her and saying, hey, can you come to our workplace and do this talk on vulnerability? And she was like, yes, I'd be, I'd be glad to. And they said, well, but, but can you do it without using the word vulnerability? <laughs> and of course, she said, no, because you have to open yourself up if you're going to ask these questions. You know, I, as, we were, as we were prepping for this show, I was looking at the, I, I had a philosophy professor who told me that you have to agree on what the words mean before we can have a discussion. And I thought there are similar words that mean sometimes the same and sometimes different things. And there's sympathy and there's empathy and there's compassion. Okay, so wait a second. Before you go any further, I want you... I, I never assume anything when I'm teaching. Can you walk our audience through specifically the difference between sympathy and empathy? Because people get it confused all the time. And if you want to add compassion to it, but give them the simple definitions, Joe, just in case some listeners don't know. Absolutely. And, and so the idea of sympathy is that I feel as, at least as bad as you do, right? So if somebody tells a sad story... Uh, and the, and their friend is sitting next to them. They're sitting there crying, and the friend comes over and says, oh, what's wrong? And the friend sits down next to them, and they tell their sad story, and pretty soon there are two people sitting there crying. This is sympathy. And the problem with sympathy is that it can lead to sloppiness. There's nothing wrong with understanding and appreciating somebody else's difficulty. But what sympathy can sometimes become, if we're not aware, is that you see a person digging themselves into a hole and the sympathetic individual says, oh, let me help you, and jumps down into the hole and digs with them. Okay, so let's, let's do this in, a, in a, a way that you and I both love to do. Let's talk about these words experientially in a real-life situation. So I come to work. You're my boss. I come to work, and you have made the self-awareness to know that I'm not myself. For whatever reason, you've determined it. And you walk up to me and go, Mark, you know, you don't seem yourself. Is everything okay? And I'm gonna, I'll respond, and then you pick it up from here. Mark, you, you seem a little out of sorts today. What, what's going on? And so now I say, Joe, I say, oh, well, you know what? My wife just lost her job. 
Now, before you respond, okay, this is a really important part of the show today, and um, I want you to think about something, not Joe to think about something. I want our listeners to think about something. My wife just lost her job. So one of the default reactions I think takes place for a lot of leaders is, well, I can't help you with that, right? So if you can't problem solve it, then what, what do you want me to do? I, I can say I'm sorry. I can say, so explain what sympathy would look like, Joe, in a situation. Tell me your response if you were being sympathetic and tell me your response if you were being empathetic to my wife just lost her job. Absolutely. So the sympathetic person says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? And then you start to describe, just as an example, you start to describe how she had a difficult time, it was a manager that was difficult, and the company didn't support her, and the next thing that happens is I'm sitting here looking at you going, yeah, some companies are just terrible to work with, and some bosses are just awful managers, and, and, and the problem is I'm now in the hole digging with you. So I've heard what you have to say, but I've given you absolutely no useful uh, awareness of how to process it. Well, and I want to ask you, and, I, and I wanna, we're about to head into our next break, but I want to ask you something. We'll continue this right after the break is, if I say sorry to hear that, what happened, and then they tell me what happened, and then I go into the exact mode, either I go into problem-solving mode or I start to say, well, I know that sucks and blah, 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 then it really becomes about you and not really the other person. So you're making it about you. Is that correct? That's part of it. But the other thing is, I'm not actually helping you in any useful manner. I'm not giving you any kind of coping skill. I'm not giving you any kind of alternative perspective. You said that it minds, one of Mindset Go's main purposes is to help people change mindset. But by simply being seemingly sympathetic to you, I'm not doing jack to help you change your mind. I'm actually contrary to that awareness, I'm reinforcing your difficulty. Okay. So when we come back for our next segment, we're going to talk about how Joe would handle it empathetically. The wife, my wife lost the job. And for I Communicate and Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Listening to I Communicate on Full Service Radio 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to Mindset uh, Go radio show called I Communicate. And I gotta tell you, Joe and I, like, we, you, I mean, for those of you who haven't met us, like, we just fire each other up. Like, not in an angry way, but in a, like an enthusiastic, passionate way. And you know, whenever Joe's on the show, the stuff we talk about is stuff that we are both passionate about. We both feel we can add value on. And I, I feel like the more this show goes on, the more I'm enjoying it and having fun. And I hope you are too, because we're really trying to create some value. And look, when you listen to, by the way, this show, when you take the commercials out, is a 40-minute radio show, okay? So how much value can you add in 40 minutes to someone? Well, I'll tell you, I can answer that. You can create awarenesses, and you can stimulate thought, and you can give a tip or two in the mix as well. But the idea is that Joe and I would be happy, and Joe will correct me if he doesn't agree with this, Joe and I would be happy that if you called us up after one of the shows and you listened, you said, you know what? 
I got to tell you guys, I never thought about the difference between sympathy and empathy and how someone could perceive it and whatever. If you said that to us, we'd be thrilled because if your takeaway was you hadn't had that as a previous awareness, but now you're going to make it a priority to have that awareness moving forward, that's a win. Like that's what we're looking for is the mindfulness and the commitment to what we're talking about and incorporating that in your life. So Joe, just to, for, for those of you, just to recap, although I have to say something funny here, Joe, well, I'm about to do something that is a pet peeve of mine on TV, is that when you're watching a TV show and then they come back um, from the break and they like recap the previous 10 seconds of what just happened, I'm like, I was, I've been watching the show. Like I don't have that little of an attention span. <laughs> um, but in any event... We're talking about taking a scenario in the workplace. My wife lost the job. We're talking about how Joe as a leader could respond sympathetically and empathetically. He just walked through what a sympathetic reaction would look like. And Joe, before we get to empathetic, one quick question. What's the primer? If you could put this in a five-second answer, what's the primary ingredient that's missing between sympathy and empathy? I think the the fundamental difference is that empathy requires you to be forward thinking while sympathy requires or it doesn't require but sympathy simply leaves you in the moment. Okay, that's great. So, I'm I'm not my my whole goal with being sympathetic is to see if I can feel as bad as you do. <laughs> and my goal with empathy is different. Okay, so let's talk about so now let's do my wife lost my job. Now you're going to be the empathetic leader. So what does that look like? So the, the first thing to realize is that the very idea of empathy comes from a physiological phenomenon called mirror neurons. And I mean, there's, everybody knows there's neural activity happening in your brain all the time. Some people may be aware that there is a small percentage of neurons, as many as 20%, whose, uh, whose job is to mimic the person sitting next to you. So, for instance, when somebody's sitting at playing a piano, this and you're sitting there listening attentively and actively listening to them, the exact same part of the brain that's activated for the person playing the piano is activated in the person listening to the piano. Wow. And and this this creates um, the idea uh, of on a positive level of what's called sympathetic joy. So if you're super happy about something and you tell me about it and I understand what you're telling me, I can actually be happy for you and with you even though nothing's happened directly to me. Sympathetic joy because these, these mirror neurons reflect it. But mirror neurons reflect good and bad. So if, if I get from you that picture of what's happening with you and I want to be empathetic, I can say, hey, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, is there anything that I can do, right? Because immediately, you, maybe your wife lost her job in the past, or maybe you lost your job. You know, uh, clearly you know someone that's lost a job. So now we're talking about activating that same place in your brain and saying, listen, if there's anything that, that, that if you'd like to talk about it, if it would be helpful for us to have a conversation, if there's something that you think I can do, um, please let me know. If you feel like you need some time to deal with this, um, let me know and we'll see what we okay. can do. Okay, so okay, so and then in light of that, the empathetic response to my wife lost the job would be, lost her job. I'm very sorry to hear that. I know that that can create a, a, a difficult situation, particularly at, at times like this that we're experiencing with COVID and so forth, and the and the economy. Um, let's uh, 
let me let me just make this statement if you feel it would be advantageous to talk to talk about this to to deal with it in some fashion i want you to know that i'm available to help you so let me ask you a question about your answer joe you said it was very interesting your word choice you said i know that can create a difficult situation so is that the right wording because if 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 you've had your wife lose her job that would be acceptable, wouldn't it? But if you haven't, should you say, I can't imagine what that would be like? Talk to me about the difference, whether you've experienced it or not, and how that may affect your answer. I, I think that's a great question. And I think the key is, if you have no idea what this person is going through, then I think you say, I can't imagine what that would be like. But there's a good chance that the person, your manager, has experienced something along these lines. And in which case, you can say, I know this can be difficult, right? Uh, and if it, they say, oh, really? Have you experienced something like this? Yeah, uh, my son lost his job, or his wife lost her job, and they were experiencing a difficult time for a while. Part of it is that if, with empathy, empathy is kind of tricky in this moment. If you don't know what the other person is experiencing, it is, it is pretty much inappropriate to say, oh, I know what that's like because you had something similar to it. And that's when you say, you know, I've, I, I haven't experienced that before, but, but I, I realize that it can be difficult. See, that's a critical takeaway, Joe, for our listeners right there, because we're talking about, I pose the question, but if your wife hasn't lost your job, you really don't know what that's like. But the idea is, as a leader, it doesn't have to be the exact same situation. It could be something comparable. Exactly. Right? Which is Joe's point. And so he says, um, I know that can create a difficult situation. Is, Is there something I can do to help you? Now think about the question. We're right back to where we started again. Is there something I can do to help you? Well, guess what? You can't get your wife, a, her, their wife, a job. Like that's not your job. I mean, you may be able to, but that's uh, unlikely. Unlikely. So when you say, "Is there something I can do to help you?" It, there may be something that you never even thought of. What if the person said, "Great example." What if the person said, "Actually, yeah." To tell you the truth. Um, She's actually going to be looking for some jobs this afternoon and feels a little lost. And I would love to spend a couple of hours with her and give her support so she embarks on that journey. You might be like, oh, my God, I can do that. Well, and you've just jumped from empathy to compassion. I, I was looking in, in, in doing work about this. I, I found what I thought was an excellent um, delineation. Somebody said that empathy... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, compassion was empathy with the desire to help. Well, okay, so now you're on to something, Joe. Uh, well, you're always on to something. But <laughs> this is what I remember I was asking the question in the last segment about do you have to take action to exhibit empathy? Remember in the scenario I gave? So is compassion, is it actually taking some action or is it the offer to take some action? Well, I think it's both because you may not be able to take the action that the person needs, but 
how, as you say, how will you know unless you ask? If, if somebody needs something as simple as a couple hours off in the afternoon, this is a big deal to them. But it might not be a big deal to you. Maybe you take a couple hours off whenever you need to. But this person doesn't have that opportunity. So when you say, yes, absolutely, take the time that you need. If you need to do this today, buy on what just go ahead. What, let's call it a day right now. Wrap up what you're doing and head out of here and, and go spend time with your family that that seems like something simple but but you know the 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 analogy I use is I used to be frontline customer service for many years and we were scheduled to be done with our jobs at 510 each day and every once in a while the manager would come through and there were four of us and he would say to us guys you know I'll I'll close everything up tonight why don't you guys just go, just go at five o'clock and we would all walk out to the parking lot now he just let us go 10 minutes early, but we'd be throwing a party on the way out the door because of 10 minutes. So Joe, before we go into our final break, just want to confirm one thing. So when you say jump from empathy to compassion, compassion is the offer to take action and then being willing to take that action if possible. If it's if it's something that's available to if you. If it's available. Okay, awesome. We will be back for our final segment of I Communicate. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, back for our final segment of I Communicate. I'm here with Joe Lyman, Mark Altman. As I mentioned the opening segment, Mindset Go, we're trying to help shift people's thought processes, change mindsets, um, reframe how people talk to themselves. And by the way, Joe, I have to just share a quick anecdote before we get into this final segment. And um, so, and this is, this is 100% true, what I'm about to say. So when I take on a new leadership team or coaching client, I literally, one of the last things I say when I finish the discussion is, there is one rule you will have to follow if we're going to work together. And they say, what is it? I say, you cannot talk mean to yourself. I said, if I hear you during a coaching or training session, talking mean to yourself and beating yourself up, I will stop you and we will talk about it. Because I'm not looking for you to give yourself false praise and platitudes, but I am also not looking for you to unreasonably beat yourself up or beat your, be hard on yourself. So that is a static rule. And so I said it to someone this morning and they're like, oh, that's so refreshing. I'm like, but you don't need me for that. Like, you could do that on your own and make that choice. It's a perfectly reasonable thing for people to do. As if it was that easy. But anyway, yeah. so I just wanted to share that. So, look, we're talking about empathy, and we're going we're gonna to do a second part to this show. But in our final segment today, Joe, what's interesting is, you know, when I look up the definition of empathy, it talks about the capacity or ability to imagine oneself in the situation of another. And what's interesting to me is when you talked about, and I think you did a great job talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy, but sympathy feels in some ways like a checkbox act. It feels like, oh, I'm sorry. And, and it's, like, it's like something you're supposed to say in many cases. So my wife lost her job. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. 
you know. God, let's that, send a card. Yeah, let's send a card. It's like an just a, a procedural box check. You know, you're, it's it's equivalent in some cases to walking by someone on the street and saying, how are you, and not really caring how people are. Joe talked about empathy being a forward-thinking act. Like, you're not up against a time limit. You're not racing to your next meeting. You're actually engaging someone to understand what they're going through, why they're going through it, et cetera, et cetera. So what are your thoughts, Joe, on that? Well, it's interesting, and, and this goes directly to what you described as you can't think bad thoughts and so forth. Because what I think today, I will say tomorrow, and I will do the day after that. Human beings are think, say, do creatures, right? So if I'm starting with negative thoughts and I'm speaking those negative thoughts to you in my coaching session, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially planning to do them tomorrow. And that is a big problem. And then the other thing is uh, the idea of sympathy and a checkbox. As you were saying that, it occurred to me, this is, you just, in a sentence, described why, statistically speaking, diversity trainings aren't actually really successful. Uh, and, I, and I hate to break this bad news to companies that are spending tens of millions of dollars on diversity training, but the statistical likelihood that your diversity training creates greater diversity in your workplace is pretty much no. And the reason is because people don't make the connection from, they don't make the leap from sympathy to empathy. Empathy is what creates a more diverse workforce and, and the, the opportunity for greater diversity and the opportunity for greater understanding. But they've found that many times uh, workforces that receive diversity training actually end up less likely to pay attention to people who are suffering from the difficulties of um, discrimination because they have what? Checked the box. Okay. I yeah. went to the diversity training, therefore, I don't actually have to pay any attention to anybody who's suffering from any kind of diversity-related problem. Yeah, I mean, that's a fabulous example, Joe. And um, so I, I, I want to shift to, for our final few minutes of the show, I want to uh, shift to one other concept here, and that is the fact that empathy can neutralize negativity. So, you know, there's this thought, like, what do you mean empathy can neutralize negativity? So... Here's the situation. When someone is not meeting your expectations, when someone is disappointing you, there could be a host of reasons. Talked about this on past shows. What gets in the way, among other things that get in the way of behavioral and habit change, one is confidence, knowledge, skills, experience, the ability to advocate for themselves. It could be the templates they had growing up, previous bosses. I mean, the list goes on and on. But here's the point I'm trying to make. I hear a lot of leaders say when we do training, Joe, they'll say, I know, Mark, you know, when people aren't doing what they ask them, what we ask them to do and when they're not meeting our expectations, they could have things going on, on at home. They could be dealing with COVID. It's this whole little like script. And I'm like, that's true. But let's back up a second. This is what I want you to think about. You can do two things at the same time. You can empathize with someone and validate their emotions and feelings without at the same time feeling like you're enabling a behavior. So if someone has to submit a timesheet each week and you've asked them three times to submit their timesheet on time and now you're at your third conversation, 
you're not thinking empathetic at that point. You're thinking you're pissed because you feel disrespected and you've had three conversations. Empathy is not even in the, on the radar by that third conversation, right? As opposed to maybe it wasn't on the radar in the first or second conversation, and now you better bring it on the radar. That's what's going to make the third conversation different. So when you say to that person, when they say, well, how come you still haven't submitted your timesheet on time? And you say, you know what? Sorry, I just keep forgetting. I want to do it, but I just keep forgetting. You validate and empathize without enabling by saying, wow, I know there's, there's a lot going on to think about and manage right now. Um, I know what you're going through. I feel the same way. I feel overwhelmed at times myself. What can I do to help you build this habit? What can I do to support you? And in the same moment, even if you think their excuse or reason for not doing it is garbage that doesn't warrant empathy, you're not enabling the behavior by providing empathy. It's just that. It's providing empathy. And I, and I think that's the key because so many times leaders believe, incorrectly in, in, uh, in my opinion, that, that empathy condones problem behavior. And just the opposite is true. We, I mean, think about it. it I, I'd love us to talk about feedback sometimes because one of the things that you discover is that the purpose of feedback is to create a different and better outcome. So there's 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 just a really easy checklist in figuring out what what's good feedback and what's bad feedback. And it just says this. It's just a question. Is this likely to get me to the place I want to be? And it says yes or no. And if the answer is yes, then we have that conversation. And if the answer is no, then I don't say that. So if I yell at you, is that likely to get me where I want to be? No. If I attack you, is that likely to achieve the different and better outcome? No, don't do that. If I say, if only you could be as good as X other employees, or if only you could do... All of these things fail to convince anyone uh, to change their behavior. It's, it's like the, the, the proverbial calm down to somebody who's unhappy. Statistically speaking, the last two words you should ever say to somebody who's unhappy is calm down because we know that physiologically it makes them more unhappy. All right, so Joe, last, let's each give our final thoughts for the show because we have to wrap up. So in your mind, what do you want our listeners to be the biggest takeaway take today? Stephen Covey tells the story of a man who's on a subway. And another gentleman with two children gets on, and the two small children start annoying some of the people on the subway. And as the train moves down, the father doesn't seem to be paying much attention to them. And eventually the gentleman says something to the father and says, I don't know if you're aware of it, but your children are, you know, kind of bothering the people around them. And the gentleman looks at him and says, oh, yeah, you know, we just left the hospital where their mother died, and I guess they really don't know how to act yet. So... When the listeners heard the first half of the story, they're probably thinking about the annoying children. And then they find out that their mother just died. What are you thinking about now? And that becomes the difference. And it, it takes literally that long, no time at all, to switch from, oh, this was a problem, to, oh, I understand. How now will we deal with the problem? Because once you know the genesis of it, you can be more self-aware of how you respond to it. Awesome. All right. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. This has been another edition of I Communicate. We will look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Ted. You've been listening to I Communicate with your host, Mark Altman. 
Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.